Let me encourage you to take your Bibles and go back with me this evening to Ecclesiastes chapter 4 tonight. Ecclesiastes chapter 4. I thought, wow, the words of the last song we just sang together are very fitting as we come to the text. So think about him saying things like, unnumbered comforts to my soul, thy tender care bestowed, or uh, next verse, then thousand, thousand precious gifts my daily thanks employ, uh, calling us to say, God, you've been so good. Uh, I'm content in what you've done. Uh, Because the text that we're going to go to tonight asks us some of those questions about, are you content? Are you diligent? Uh, Do you make time for people? Uh, are you approachable and teachable as Solomon continues to work through different problems? I kind of laughed because I had a moment of tension even in my own spirit a couple weeks ago. I shared the story with a few of you, uh, but I went to the bank to make a deposit and uh, had a couple 20s and a few fives and uh, just was kind of in a hurry, went up to the ATM, stuck my card in, put my PIN number in, uh, you know, the little door opens and I shoved the bills in. And it's, you know, making its noise, and I'm like, all right, let's, let's go, let's go. And it starts to show up on the screen, counting your money, and then it says, unable to read your item. And I'm like, okay, so, you know, one of the bills had a little crease in it, and so it's got to wait and shoot that bill back out so that then I can shove it in again, and it'll hopefully take it the second time. And so I'm standing there waiting, and it shoots out that bill. I'm like, okay, I got that. And I had 20s and 5s. And it's like the machine is really slow today, where I'm in a really big hurry. I don't, I don't know what. And uh, I'm not content. I'm not patient. I'm like, let's get this done. But the machine's making its noise, and the door is open. It's giving me my bill back, and it just keeps going. And all of a sudden, out comes a $50 bill. And I went, wow, that's interesting. And a door is open, and it's making its noise. And I'm like, you think I'm leaving now? And all of a sudden, now comes another $50 bill. I'm like, wow, and it's making its noise, and the door is open, and I'm thinking, all right, come on, how far can we take this? Unfortunately, it closed, and now I've got $100 that I did not put into the ATM uh, that are coming in, and in that moment, I'm like, ooh, wow, and then it's like, well, obviously, the answer is go in the bank and say, hey, which was an awkward conversation to go in and tell them, like, I did not, you didn't have any 50s, no, I had zero 50s. And they're looking at me like, are you sure? I had no 50s. And yes, it gave these to me. I I don't know why. Like if it always worked that way, everyone would come here. Okay. But you know, I did not go to the bank expecting for them to add to my paycheck, expecting for them to add to my account and go, let's just give you a little extra money. Like interest rates are really high right now. Okay. The answer is no, we just need to be content in what has been given. And I've already alluded to it in the questions earlier, but let me just walk through them again. That when you come to this text in Ecclesiastes, Solomon's looking at some different problems. And if we were to apply what he asks, we would ask, are you content with what God's done in your life? Where it really is okay to sing the song that we just sang together to go, God, you have given thousands and thousands of blessings. I just want to praise you. And in that contentment, then, are you also diligent to go, God, I I don't want to squander what you've given. I don't want to be lazy. Uh, I don't want to be selfish, but I want to work diligently. But God, I I, I don't want to be like overly committed to work, so much so that I avoid and isolate myself from people. Uh, God, I, I know I need to make time for people. They're important. 
And then finally to say, and I also want to learn and, and be approachable and serve even when given positions of leadership. I think as we walk through the text this evening, you'll see these additional observations of wrong that Solomon makes along the way. We did not read this morning, Ecclesiastes 4, verse 4 through verse 16, which is our text for tonight. And rather than read it now, I'm going to read it as we go through and hope that you can uh, keep along as we go. We've been looking at this idea that in the seasons of life, beginning of Ecclesiastes 3, God is sovereign, middle to end of Ecclesiastes 3. He makes all things beautiful in his time. And even when we see wrongs, God will right all those wrongs. We looked at that this morning in verse 17. I said in mine heart, chapter 3, verse 17, I said in mine heart, God shall judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time there for every purpose and for every work. But then in the midst of that, we've been looking at Solomon's observations of wrong. We looked at two this morning. We're going to continue on this evening. And I just want to remind all of us that these wrongs are rooted in selfishness. That when we're discontent, it's a problem of selfishness. When there's oppression, it's a problem of selfishness. When there's laziness, it's a problem of selfishness. When work is our idol, it is a problem of selfishness. As we come back to the text this evening, we've looked at a first observation of wrong in chapter 3, extensive injustice. The solution was place your confidence in God. We got into the beginning of chapter 4 this morning with a second observation of wrong, this oppressive wickedness, and the solution we gained biblically, broader than just Ecclesiastes 4, is to provide care for the wrong. So we come back to the text in Ecclesiastes 4, verse 4 this evening. We'll make a third observation of wrong. We'll call it comparative greediness. Comparative greediness. Solomon says again, I considered all travail and every right work, that for this a man is envied of his neighbor. This is also vanity and vexation of spirit. Beyond looking at oppression, Solomon begins to look at mankind and his work, his efforts, his labors. In fact, here he says, for someone who's seeking to do right in their work, even seeing a degree of success in their work, and yet as they do that, as they put forth their effort, they're doing every right good work, competition creeps in, comparison creeps in, envy is present, discontentment is there. He says, because of that, because of the work that's being done and the right work that's being done, this man is envied of his neighbor. And Solomon looks at that and it's like, look, the comparison, this greediness that takes place, makes it all worthless. It uh, makes life empty. And we realize that, that when we're discontent in our circumstances, it robs us of joy. And Solomon's saying, you know what makes life pointless is when we look at others and see them trying to do good work, doing what's right, and we're jealous as a result. We're envious of their situation. And again, if we were to put it in maybe our terms today, we're like, well, if I had that job, or if I had that boss, or if my schedule was easy as theirs, or if I didn't have these circumstances, if, if mine was like theirs, he's like, here's a man who's trying to do every right work, and yet he is envied by his neighbor. Rather than enjoying his portion... He's selfishly evaluating others. 
Again, we live in a culture that promotes and does this all the time. It's that phrase of keeping up with the Joneses to go, man, I wish I had their job or their family or their career or their life. American culture, we will spend ourselves into oblivion to try to make it match, to go, well, I've got to have that. This is the standard of living. This is just what I have to do because we're evaluating by comparison instead of wisdom. That jealousy, I would remind us, violates the 10th commandment, the last of the commandments back in Exodus chapter 20, to go, here's what you do not envy or you do not covet along the way. Been interesting in prepping here and then also just in some conversations this week. First Corinthians has been coming to mind where we're reminded that comparing ourselves among ourselves and measuring ourselves by ourselves is what? It's not wise. But we spend a lot of time going, well, look at look at what's going on for them. And well, mine is just hard. And I, I just wish and Solomon's looking at the comparison that led to greediness here where a man is looking, a neighbor is looking at someone doing every right work, and that comparative greediness renders it vanity or empty. Again, Solomon said it this way in Proverbs 14, verse 30, that envy is the rottenness of the bones. You know, when we're giving into comparison, when we're discontent with what God has given us, It undermines our joy. It brings destruction to our life. The implicit admonition to us is to be on guard against comparative greediness. To go, God, I want to live the life that you've given to me, not lust for somebody else's. God, I just want to love what you're doing in my life instead of desiring what you've given to somebody else. Before we look at the solution to comparative greediness, we kind of want to look at the other end of the spectrum in verse 5, and make a fourth observation of wrong. The third was comparative greediness. The fourth is lazy indifference. So if someone's looking at someone working diligently and they're envying that, we come to someone who, perhaps in their envy, but definitely in their inactivity, is just lazy. Verse 5, the fool foldeth his hands together and eateth his own flesh. The idea of folding one's hands together is often used by Solomon to picture laziness or to picture sloth. Take you to a couple texts that show that in Solomon's writing, the first of which pretty familiar is Proverbs chapter 6. It's that illustration of the ant to consider the ant in all of her diligence, how she prepares ahead and uh, puts things away. But coming out of that illustration, Solomon asks, and he applies and asks the question in Proverbs 6, verse 9. How long wilt thou sleep, O sluggard? When wilt thou arise out of thy sleep? Yet a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to sleep. So shall thy poverty come as one that traveleth, and thy want as an armed man. He said, hey, look at the ant. The ant is diligent and You in laziness as a sluggard are not. You're sleeping. You're you're folding your hands. You're constantly taking it easy. And so poverty is coming after you. Again, Ecclesiastes 4 verse 5 says a little differently. The The fool folds his hands together, not realizing he's consuming himself. He's wasting life. He's wasting his substance. Proverbs 24, verse 30, again, uses this idea of the folding of hands. Uh, In Proverbs 24, verse 30, 31, it says this, I went by the field of the slothful, by the vineyard of the man void of understanding. 
Lo, it was all grown over with thorns, and nettles had covered the face thereof, and the stone wall thereof was broken down. Then I saw and considered it well. I looked upon it and received instruction. Yet a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to sleep, so shall thy poverty come as one that traveleth, and thy want as an armed man. Same, illust- or same closing words to go, look, when we give in to laziness, uh, poverty is coming. There is a need for diligence, but that diligence is not about discontentment. We don't work to seek to compare or keep a standard that someone else gives. We're simply, as we've seen over and over in Ecclesiastes, saying, God, this is the portion you've given. I want to live that out well. I want to enjoy what you've given well. Laziness, we could say, is self-destructive. The indulgence leads to self-consumption, the wasting of one's own life. And so we ask the question, what's the answer to the extremes of selfishness, whether comparative greediness or lazy indifference? I think the solution we could summarize this way is learn contentment. Learn contentment. Look at where he goes in verse 6. He said, okay, we're looking at this guy who's working hard in every right work, and we're just envious. We're greedy of his life. Comparison has crept in. Or on the other hand, we've got someone over here who's just, you know what, I'm just going to enjoy life. I'm just not going to do much. I'm going to live as a fool in laziness. Verse 6, he comes down and says, here's the solution. Learn contentment. Better is a handful with quietness than both hands full with travail and vexation of spirit. Go Rather than working hard to keep up with the Joneses and pursuing greediness or consuming oneself in laziness or selfishness, contentment is best. I don't have to get all worked up and worried about what someone else has that I don't or how I'm going to obtain the next thing. I'm just going to take what God has given and very quietly say I'm content. This theme shows up over and over again, so we've been to this text, I think, two other weeks, and in fact, we can see it next week in chapter 5, like contentment we're going to keep driving at. But it said 1 Timothy 6, godliness with contentment is great gain. Better is little or a handful with quietness than to have all this stuff but be uh, so busy, consumed, keeping it all together. Again, I think of Paul's example, it's why I articulate the solution the way that we did this evening. Paul's example in Philippians chapter 4, he's like, I know what it's like to abound. I know what it's like to be abased. He's like, I know both extremes. But I have learned in whatsoever state I am, therewith to be content. It's like, I know what it's like to be full. I know what it's like to be empty. But I have learned that whatever state God has me in, I'm going to be content. I think we would do well to consider the wisdom of what Solomon's saying here in Ecclesiastes, where one guy looks at someone else and, man, he's doing every right work, and it's like, man, I'm jealous of him. Or to look at someone else who's lazy and to go, you know what, God, I just want to be content with what you've given. I want to be diligent in what you've given, in the life that you've entrusted to me. Again, Solomon says similar words in Proverbs 16, Proverbs 17, Proverbs 16, verse 8, he said it this way. Better is a little with righteousness than great revenues without right. It's like, you know what? It's, it's better to be doing right and have little than to be doing wrong and have much. Again, that fits very well because context is this oppression, right? 
chapter 3, chapter 4, we're mistreating others for personal gain. Proverbs 17, verse 1, he said it this way, Better is a dry morsel in quietness therewith than a house full of sacrifices with strife. So again, it's better, it's more content to have little than to have, well, I'm trying to do all the right things, but have strife and envy and discontentment present. We could say it this way, contentment with little is better than contentious greed. His first observation of wrong was extensive injustice. Second was oppressive wickedness. Third and fourth that we've looked at this evening is comparative greediness or lazy indifference. Now fifth, we come to verses seven and eight, and we'll summarize it this way. It's enterprising selfishness. Enterprising selfishness. Then I returned, and I saw vanity under the sun. There is one alone, and there is not a second, Yea, he hath neither child nor brother, yet there is no end of all his labor. Neither is his eye satisfied with riches, neither saith he, for whom do I labor and bereave my soul of good? This is also vanity. Yea, it's a sore travail. While we're on the subject of work, he's like, let me tell you about an individual who basically life is work. There's nothing else to live for. There are no people present. There's no one to give to. He is completely devoted to his job, to his labor, is the word that's used in the text. We've already been admonished in chapter 1 and chapter 2 that when it comes to man's labor, there is no lasting profit. That is not where meaning in life is to be ultimately found, at least not when we view it simply on a horizontal level. But instead to say, God, this is the job that you've given. I'm going to do it with all my might as unto the Lord. We follow Colossians 3 or Ephesians chapter 6 as New Testament examples. Solomon observes one here who is working nonstop, but he has no family, he has no friends, we could say, and he has no fulfillment. You notice the text, again, we're told very clearly, there's no child, no brother. His eye is not satisfied with riches. He lives for work and has no relationships, and yet... He's not satisfied. He's self-consumed. He's uh, giving into his labors alone. And Solomon concludes, it's all vanity. Again, we can look around in our culture. I would guess you perhaps know people who live this way. You know what? Above family, above relationships with friends, above people, job is king. Maybe sometimes it's appeased as, well, you know, like, I got to do this job so that I can give to all these people. And it's like, actually, more than your money, they just want you. Solomon here looks at individuals like, no, they don't have anybody to give to, and they live for work, and yet work doesn't satisfy. Work doesn't uh, give them what they want to accomplish. They have to keep working more and more and more. It's a reminder to us to keep work in the right perspective. I already alluded to it a moment ago, but work did precede the fall. God has intended for us to do meaningful work. He gave Adam and Eve, or Adam particularly, a garden to dress and keep, and animals to be named, and responsibilities to be fruitful, to multiply, to fill the earth. God gave man tasks, but man likes to take them tasks, take those tasks, and allow them to be masters. It's where, again, we do well to heed that wisdom of Colossians 3. 
for Ephesians chapter 6 to go, you know, when I work, the reason I do it is for him. It's for his glory, whether it's recognized or not. It's not with eye service as men pleasers. As a result, the individual here is just completely alone. In the midst of this observation of wrong, this enterprising selfishness, it's interesting how Solomon then gives a solution. We could say it this way, pursue companionship with others. Here's a guy who's all alone, he's working, he's laboring, and yet he's not satisfied with his riches. Coming out of that then, we're told, hey, two are better than one. We can go, okay, well, that sounds really practical, like it's good to have a teammate, and yeah, that's good, but it's not just practical, it's a relational goal. It's something to be worked at and maintained. I guess I'll jump ahead uh, in my notes for just a minute and note, I, I don't think we're just exclusively talking about like, uh, you know, two are better than one and like, hey, a marriage relationship. I, I understand why in light of some of the things that follow that said, but we're going to get to the end. He's like, and a threefold cord is not easily broken. Like, hey, we can bring three into the picture because three are better than two. Like having relationships with people is a good thing. And there are some in the room who are like, yep, amen. I got it. I agree. And there's others in the room who go, okay, I guess I have to concede that. And for those who maybe find themselves in that second group, there's a good challenge for us here to go, we're not just want to give ourselves to tasks and things, but to people. Because he's just talked about someone who's given over to tasks, to labor, to work. And he's coming out of that saying, listen, two are better than one. They have a good reward for their labor. If they fall, the one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him that is alone when he falleth, for he that hath, he that hath not another to help him up. Again, if two lie together, they have heat, but how can they be warm alone? If one prevail against him, two shall withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. And it's that idea, that math, two are better than one, and three are even better than two. And you start to walk through those verses and you begin to realize when we have others, when we have friends, when we have family, they provide productivity or they benefit productivity. There's a good reward for labor. It provides help when we're struggling, when we fall to go, hey, let's go, come on, get up, I will help you. It aids protection to go, you know, if someone comes against us, it's better to have a friend. I would remind us that in our selfish culture, because I do believe selfishness is much in view, you've heard that a number of times today, we kind of take a self-oriented approach to relationships. I can take it when I want and I can leave it when I want. I mean, I, I can mediate all of my communication at will right here, right? It's like, oh, okay, let's leave that there. And there's some advantage to that, no doubt, but at the same time to realize, you know what? God made us to be in relationship with others. God made us to be in relationship with himself. I think even again of God coming to Adam in the cool of the day. Go, Adam, where are you? And Adam's hiding. He's avoiding relationship. He, he doesn't want to be known, right? But God knows. I think we would do well to heed the wisdom of what Solomon is saying here and realize the necessity of relationships. Realize the necessity of companionship. And maybe I'll push just a little further than that. Not just give it like mental assent to go, okay, yep, 
relationships are important, but to prioritize then time with people. Okay, God, how do I interact with others to be a help to them and to be helped by them? We'll jump ahead maybe for just a minute and because where he's going to go next, he's going to say, now let me tell you about a king who doesn't take advice from people. Right? He's living in isolation in his leadership. We would do well to pursue companionship with others. First observation of wrong was extensive injustice. Place your confidence in God. Second, oppressive wickedness. Provide care for the wrong. Third and fourth were comparative greediness, lazy indifference, the solution, learn contentment. And then fifth, we said there's this enterprising selfishness, this lonely selfishness. The solution, pursue companionship. Sixth and final observation of wrong here in the text is authoritative foolishness authoritative foolishness. He says, better is a poor and wise child than an old and foolish king who will no more be admonished, for out of prison he cometh to reign, whereas also he that is born in his kingdom becometh poor. I considered all the living which walk under the sun with the second child that shall stand in his stead. There is no end of all the people, even of all that have been before them. They also that come up shall not rejoice in him. Surely this also is vanity and vexation of spirit. He paints the picture of someone who is in a position of authority. He's king. He's advanced in years. And yet as Solomon makes his assessment, he's like, actually, it's better to look at this child than to, who is living in wisdom than to look at this king who in his advanced years and his position of authority, in essence, is saying, I have nothing else to learn. I'm good. I'm in control. Meanwhile, the people underneath of him are struggling. The people who are being born are being born into poverty in the midst of perhaps the wickedness that's already been alluded to earlier in the chapter. Again, as you start looking at the attributes of this king, you realize he's unapproachable in counsel when it says he will no more be admonished. He's unhelpful to those under his rule when they are born into poverty. They're born poor. He's replaceable. Because there is going to be this second one who reigns in his stead. And one that's kind of a stunning indictment is he's unappreciated. He has no joyful legacy. It says, they that come after shall not rejoice in him. Like It's better to look at someone who's young, who's inexperienced, who's wise, who's actually approachable, than to look at this individual who's advanced in their years, who has authority, but they're not going to hear anything out. They've got the answers. Solomon's saying, no, it's actually better to just listen and be wise and benefit others because this older individual who won't take counsel, who's going to lead, says they that come after won't rejoice in him. He's unappreciated, no lasting, joyful legacy. His powerful, unapproachable reign, we might say, is pointless. It's vanity. I think we can look at an implied solution that matches very biblically and is kind of the opposite of what the text says here and see our final solution as seek counsel and serve as a leader. Seek counsel and serve as a leader. He starts off introducing this old foolish king saying he will no more be admonished, but he's compared him to this child who is just wise and if we go to Solomon's other writing and look at the book of Proverbs, we realize over and over Solomon says 
to his son, a wise man will hear and will increase in learning. Wisdom listens. Wisdom seeks counsel. Wisdom is approachable. Proverbs 12, verse 15, Solomon said it this way, the way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but he that hearkeneth unto counsel is wise. Right? You ever had one of those moments where you're kind of locked in and you're like, I know this is right. I know I did it this way. I know this is true. And someone's like trying to, not physically, but like just trying to help you see it and they're almost beating on you. Like, come on. And all of a sudden you have that light bulb moment. You're like, oh, they're right. Wow. Solomon's saying here that the person, the fool is right in his own eyes. He's deceived. He thinks he's got it. But the one who listens to counsel, who heeds it, who hearkens, is wise. The king here, Ecclesiastes 4, is not that way. Again, if I were to picture it in the words of Jesus, I think about how he teaches his own disciples. Like, they're looking at positions of authority as something that they're seeking, they want. Who's going to be the greatest, right, in their discussion? And Jesus says, no, you live differently. You're not like the Gentiles, it's Matthew 20, verse 25, Jesus called on them and said, you know that about the princes, of the, Gent- or the princes of the Gentiles exercise dominion over them. They, ex- they that are great exercise authority upon them, but it shall not be so among you. But whosoever will be great among you, let him be your minister. Whosoever will be chief among you, let him be your servant, even as the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister to give his life a ransom for many. To go rather than seeking great things to go, how do I serve? The king here looks at his position of authority. He doesn't need anybody's advice. And yet we're told, you know what? Someone's going to follow him. Right now, those under his rule are struggling. They're poor, but somebody's going to follow him. And then those that come later aren't really going to care about him. They don't have good memories about him. That's why I think we could say the solution for us to avoid the wrong that Solomon sees here is to seek counsel and then to serve, to understand leadership differently, the opportunity differently to serve those around us. Solomon's been looking, going, you know, life is full of all these different seasons, good, bad, challenging, encouraging. He says in the midst of that, you know, God's sovereign. He makes everything beautiful in his time. But as he looks around, he sees lots of problems. There's wickedness. There's oppression, there's injustice, there's laziness, there's greediness, there's foolishness and authority, and yet we're reminded that God is in control. He's worth us saying, God, I'm going to rejoice in the life situation you've given. That's end of Ecclesiastes chapter 3 we saw this morning. To go, God, I'm going to be content with what you've given because it's better to have the portion that you've given than to be desiring more in the trouble that goes with it. To go, you know what, God, it's also better to value people. To have relationships rather than isolating as I pursue selfishly my own endeavors. And instead to seek counsel and to serve opposite the king that we see at the end of the text. Let's pray. God, as we finish through this section of scripture, we walk through a variety of different life challenges and wrongs that Solomon sees. Or at times he sees them and is just weighed down. At other times he 
gives counsel or uh, another perspective to correct. Lord, I pray that we would be on guard in our lives to enjoy the life that you have given us, diligently working to steward it well, to live for you well, to bring glory to you, rather than being discontent or greediness or jealousy or envy, rather than giving in to laziness. Lord, I pray that as we do that, we would value people, recognizing that it is better when we live in relationship with one another than isolating ourselves and living alone. Lord, I pray that as we even think about those things, we'd be willing to seek counsel, to listen to counsel, to be approachable, to uh, serve those perhaps that we have the opportunity to lead, to avoid the error even of the king that we see at the end tonight. Lord, we thank you for the wisdom of Solomon in this book through the spirit of uh, the, your, word, your spirit inspiring your word. It's in Jesus' name I pray, amen. Darren, would you come one more time?